I'm Nathan Gibbs, and this is Deep and Wide, a podcast about Christian culture and how ancient biblical texts are applied to issues raised in a modern world. Today we're talking about the E word, evolution. Perspectives on the creation story vary about as widely as they do on any issue among Christians. Was it a literal six-day process that created the universe, the earth, and humankind? Some defend the literal reading as the only valid reading. Some expand that view by including Psalm 90 verse 4 that says, A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. And 2 Peter 3, 8 that says, With the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. And when you add that up with the genealogical histories mentioned in the Bible, it puts the clock somewhere around six to 10,000 years old. Others take more of the historical and literary context into consideration when interpreting the creation story, which starts to allow for evolutionary theory to sit alongside the creation story rather than against it. My study of evolution and the age of the earth expanded my view of God. And philosophically, I would just have to go back to that question that says, why is there something rather than nothing? And I don't have an answer for that, and science doesn't have an answer for that. That's Dr. Janet Kellogg-Ray, who wrote a book titled Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark, The Bible and Modern Science and the Trouble of Making It All Fit. She's also an adjunct clinical assistant professor in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of North Texas. We'll hear from her, and also Dr. Jennifer Huddleston, microbiologist and chair of the biology department at Abilene Christian University. And we'll talk about what evolution is, how Christian scientists look at it, including their perspectives on whether or not evolution is compatible with faith in a creator. Janet, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Jennifer, thanks for being here. Thank you. So let me start by clarifying that uh, all of us are people of faith. We're Christians. Um, I know I first remember thinking deeply about this as a kid in a Church of Christ in California, hearing John Clayton make a presentation. Um, I don't remember many of the details, uh, but I do remember feeling some relief in that in that sequence of classes that he gave that maybe, you know, fossils were actually real and, uh, you know, maybe there wasn't such a conflict uh, between science and evolution that maybe I had thought um, as I was just a a young guy. Um, But a lot of people feel very differently or feel very strongly in particular directions on, on all of this. Jennifer, you saw the title of this book with Dinosaurs in the Ark. What was your first reaction? My first impression was that it was a very much creationist book that was saying that there were dinosaurs on the ark. Oh, no. (laughs) I misread that there was a question mark at the end of the title. (laughs) And so that kind of threw me off. But then I started um, reading reviews of the book, and then um, I also read the foreword. And then I realized, oh, this is exactly opposite from what I thought it was going to be. A lot of people, Janet, think about writing a book someday and... Uh, don't ever do it. What What was it for you that kind of got you over that or, or, or turned on that switch to say, I need to do this book? Wow. 
Well, I had been writing for a few years a, a blog, basically um, addressing issues of science and faith and other contemporary issues. And through those conversations and writing the blog and, and doing some speaking at local churches and things like that, I came to understand that many people like you who are exposed maybe to someone like John Clayton for the first time, um, you're intrigued but you don't really have the vocabulary to ask those questions. And I'm an educator, and I know that at some point you need a vocabulary in order to ask the questions, that you can be um, disconcerted about something, but you don't really uh, have a way to identify those uh, questions that are just percolating around in your brain. So I wanted to write a book for the non-scientists. There are some wonderful books out there by uh, Christians and uh, people of faith who are also scientists, and they're wonderful, and I would always recommend uh, several of those books. But I wanted my book to be that gateway. If you'd never studied evolution uh, in earnest, if everything you knew about evolution always came from anti-evolution resources, I wanted this to be a book that could be put in the hands of someone uh, who was studying the topic for the first time. Yeah, I like the book because it, you don't have to have a master's or PhD in biology to understand it. Yeah, you it is very accessible to people. I gave a copy to the youth minister at my church because I knew it would Wonderful. be something that would be really great. Yeah, um, that he could understand and that he could teach the the youth in in the that group. Mm-hmm. Jennifer, when we talk about science. What is science? Can you can you give me the context here? Like, kind of, um, what is it? What is it for? What does it do? Um, and um, and maybe what does it not do? Right. Okay. So science answers questions um, that we have about the natural world. So we have to be able to have observations, and it has to be testable. So that is really important that these observations are testable. Then we can start creating. Um, sets of ways of thinking about science that are pr- that we can say, okay, now we can make predictions based on what we've seen before. So it's testable and it's predictable. Um, science cannot answer things that don't fall into that realm. Science answers, uh, science cannot answer, is there a God? It says nothing about, about that. Um, it can answer um, how the natural world works. Not necessarily why or why am I here, only that I as a uh, part of, of nature exist and how I exist, but not why. And Janet, evolution, right, we kind of work through this process of just defining some terms or clarifying things. Can you explain evolution? What is evolution? Well, that's a big question. Um, in the context of biology, uh, when we say evolution, we are most often uh, referring to the theory of evolution. Um, the theory of evolution just quite simply says that uh, life has changed over uh, eons of time and that all life shares common ancestry. That would probably be a, a very basic uh, definition of evolution. You know, and when scientists 
talk about theories. Uh, they're not talking about a theory in the same way that we might use it in our everyday life. Um, you know, like my theory is that my Dallas Cowboys are going to win it all next year. You know, that's probably just a very hopeful guess. It's not really a theory the way scientists use the term theory. And so when, you know, we, we need to understand that um, evolution is not, as some people say, just a theory. When scientists use the term theory, it's something about which they are quite certain. Not that theories won't be tweaked a bit, but um, it's something that the foundations of which are not going to change. I mean, you're not going to jump out of an airplane without a parachute because gravitational theory is just a theory. And evolution theory is the underlying foundation of all biology, modern medicine, agriculture, conservation, modern genetics. And so when biologists talk about the theory of evolution, it's not something that's a question mark in their minds. It's something that uh, forms the very foundation of modern um, biological sciences. In your book, you make a reference to uh, not believing, quote, believing in mm -hmm. science, but mm -hmm. in or in evolution, but in accepting it. Can you explain what you mean? Yes. Uh, there are things I believe, and there are things that I accept. And actually, if I were going to categorize things, the most important things in my life are things that I believe. I believe my family loves me. I believe in God. But those things, as, as Dr. Harlison said, are not subject to the scientific method. I feel like I have good, rational reasons to believe my family loves me, but I can't prove it using the scientific method. On the other hand, I accept science evidence um, because, just quite simply, a fact is true whether I believe it or not. And so I can have a belief that the earth is flat but that doesn't change the fact that the earth is a sphere. And so I, I try to make that distinction there, that science is evidence-based, it's, it's testing-based, it's research-based. And so um, even scientists, you know, unless don't talk about proving something. As scientists talk about the evidence supports or the best evidence supports. And so I accept science evidence because it's true whether I believe it or not. Okay, so in Genesis, so get back to the beginning of creation, we see, we read about a one-week process of God creating the universe and the world, plants and animals and humans. How do you read Genesis and kind of work through this thought of, evolution being something that's real and and maybe didn't take a week, right? How, how does that work for you when you read Genesis? Well, first of all, we have to understand that our Bible didn't just fall out of the sky made of, written out of whole cloth, and that just within our, the, the books in our Bible, the 66 books that we see there, there are multiple different genres m coming from multiple different time periods, cultures, historical backgrounds. And so what we find in the book of Genesis is an ancient Near Eastern document. Um, in the New Testament, we find things uh, 
uh, letters and, and histories written from a Greco-Roman uh, perspective. And just within the Bible itself, we see very different genres, very different cultural and historical backgrounds. And so with that in mind, you know, I look at Genesis for the genre that it is. It is an ancient Near Eastern text, not unlike other text that came from the same time period, the same cultural area. Uh, the writers, the writer of Genesis was breathing the same cultural, historical, uh, linguistic air that their geographical neighbors were. So it's not surprising that Genesis has a feel very much like some of the other literature that comes from the area surrounding Israel. And so what we see in Genesis then is something that's very, very ancient. And I think a problem with a lot of people that a lot of people have in revisiting um, a literal nature of Genesis versus a non-literal nature of Genesis, specifically talking about uh, the creation week and the flood, is that we are looking, we tend to look at Genesis with 21st century eyes, and we tend to filter the truthfulness or the truthiness of Genesis through 21st century standards of truth. And it's not what the people, the original hearers, the original writers would have defined as truth, uh, the way we define it in the 21st century. And so I, I came to realize that something can be truth without being true by 21st century standards. Jennifer, you want to take a crack at that? How, right. how, do, how do you read that? Yes. Well, the same way. And I like the idea of this Genesis, the early chapters of Genesis that we're talking about here are true, but maybe not historically accurate, maybe not how we think that life originated, but they're still true because they tell us important things about God, and they tell us important things about how we relate to God and who we are in, that, in creation. Mm -hmm. And so I really like that idea of, Genesis is true, it's truth, but it's n but maybe not historically accurate. Right, not by our standards where we want yes. to know the, the timeline, the name of the people, where they lived, and we want a recording of them. In order to be true in the 21st century, there are, are very strict standards. You know, thousands and thousands of years ago in a pre-modern science mm -hmm. culture, that wouldn't have made any sense. Right. And I think the things that Genesis teaches us are more important than the historical accuracy. Right. They tell us about God and the almighty creator. That's the, that's the point of Genesis. Right. And when we try to force modern science into that, we miss that beautiful story yes. that you're talking about. Right. Now, when we look at, you know, um, evolution and, and kind of thinking through this, uh, a lot of people get stuck on the human part. And, you know, they're willing to concede that they can see things like, you know, let's say, say COVID or other things, right? Things are changing. Things are uh, adjusting, adapting. We, we see this in other ways, but I don't really like the idea that we came from monkeys, right? This sort of thought or a chimpanzee, right? That how can they be my cousins or something? Um, how do you, how does that feel to you or, or, or what's sort of the comfort level you have thinking through that, um, that ramp up to get to the human part? Well, I would start by asking someone who was struggling with this, um, 
about other processes in science that we accept are completely natural. For example, I talked about a bit in the book about no one is insisting on biblical meteorology. You know, although the Bible says that snow and rain are held in literal storehouses, no one believes that God is dumping out bowls of water on us. We totally believe, we totally accept um, the natural process of the water cycle. And again, to get back to humans, um, children come into a family through birth or adoption, and they are praised, they are, uh, thanks is given to God for the gift, but everyone understands and accepts that that child came into a family through a nine-month, very natural, embryological process that brought that child um, to life. And, you know, as a biologist, before there was the, that nine-month embryological process, there was meiosis that created the gametes that came together, and then there was the DNA and all the crossing over and all of that fun stuff. A natural process brought, brings a child into the world. Yet, we still thank God for that child. Uh, we may even call that child a miracle. And no one thinks that that child is less than or less human or less valuable because that child came into the world through a completely natural process. So we need to get past the idea that something natural, that origins in a natural process are somehow demeaning, that somehow it makes us less human or less uh, an image bearer of God because we came about through a natural process. Uh, children are loved and cherished by us, but they come to us through a natural process. It doesn't demean the gift of a child. And I like to also think about the same processes that work at the molecular level um, for, say, antibiotic resistance in bacteria and seeing variants of different viruses. Those same processes that are working in the DNA to make those changes are the same processes that have worked in our DNA and our ancestors' DNA to get us where we are today. So whenever I started thinking about, okay, I think there's – I think – there's something to evolution. I think it has credibility. I was not studying uh, schools and, and different types of hominids and things like that. I was studying DNA and bacteria. Mm -hmm. And I could see DNA and bacteria changing. And then I could also make those correlations to similar changes that we see through, from um, chimpanzees to humans and other um, chromosomal similarities there, too. So it's the DNA evidence that convinces me that this is uh, what happened. Yeah, and it's, you know, you guys know the number. Is it 98 or something percent something close that, we're, that. Mm -hmm. we're, we're matching in terms of DNA? How, Jenna, I thought this was interesting in the book where you, you, you were looking at the DNA, talking about the DNA of humans and our evolution and uh, kind of what it would mean or how it doesn't quite match up with the idea of, of, a, of two people genetically sort of being the origin of humans. Can you talk through a little bit of that? A lot of that comes from uh, population genetics work. Dennis Venema has done a lot of work on that, and he has um, he's, he's modified some of that recently, but the like we said before, the basics of the science doesn't change. And so what that is saying essentially is that there is too much diversity 
in the human um, genome to have come from a bottleneck of two individuals 6,000 years ago. It, it just couldn't be. And, and we don't really have the time to go into all the basics of that, but just, you know, genes come in different versions, which we call, you know, an allele. So you could have a gene just, say, for hair texture, and you could say you could have a curly allele and a, and a fine allele and a coarse allele. Um, and most genes do come in these different versions or alleles. And so as a result, there is a lot of, of diversity in our um, human genome. And what these population studies have determined is that um, we could not have come from such a limited gene pool. One of the things that struck me was the idea that there are, there are some genes that we have that are, that are turned off. Right. right. Oh, yeah. Uh, what were some of those right, that clearly connect when they look kind of at the chart of? Right. Well, um, there are two that, that immediately come to my mind. Um, I'm not sure if I, I don't know that I talked about this one in the book, but there's a gene for egg yolk production that humans have. And uh, actually all non-egg laying mammals carry a gene just like egg laying birds and reptiles have for production of yolk. But humans and other non-egg laying mammals don't lay eggs. Early in embryological development, humans do have a, a small uh, yolk sac, but it never fills with yolk. And this gene, when we say this gene is broken, we mean that it, it has obtained a mutation in it in, so that it is no longer functional. And interestingly, uh, that egg yolk uh, mutation in humans is broken, mutated in the same way as we see in other closely related mammals. Um, like Jennifer was saying, the evidence is there in black and white in the DNA. And so... To say that we are unique and special creations created separately and apart from all other animals, we would have to say that God purposefully inserted broken genes into the human genome for production of egg yolk, and that gene is broken in just the same way that it's broken in other non-egg-laying mammals, and it's just like the egg yolk gene in egg-laying mammals, it's just broken. And so, you know, there's a gene for uh, production of vitamin C that's broken and broken in the same way in other related animals. And in that gene, we can identify where it does work in other related animals. And so our genomes are literally littered with broken genes that attest to the evolutionary history and the ancestry that we share with all life. Jennifer, one of the things that I think is, is kind of a puzzling thought or, or, or can be challenging for someone who's not spent much, as much time, let's say, as the scientists at the table, um, thinking about these things, and that is that um, it, it's sort of like the more that we know, the less of the shine it seems to take off of it, right, from, from God or something, right, that like if um, if we knew the chemical secret chemical combination to turn water into wine, then it wouldn't be a miracle because right? we could explain it and it would sort of take it away somehow. And so I'm kind of wondering how you how you think about this idea that if we can kind of explain more of these things, it feels like it takes something away from God. I don't know how how does that sit with you? It sits opposite with me, okay. actually. So, um, so so there are some people who the more they know, the less mystery there is. Um, 
the less they feel like they can attribute that to God. Um, the way I see it, the more I know, the more I think, oh my goodness, we have this amazing creator that created this process that can continually create new organisms and allow them to adapt to their environments and gives them the genetic capability to change over time. So whenever I see that, that's where I see the fingerprints of God, not in the mystery uh, being removed, but instead, wow, this is this incredible process that God created. Right, and and I think we run into a problem, too, when we try to attribute to God things that we haven't yet explained. I mean, even Isaac Newton himself wasn't sure about how planets were moving the way they moved. And so Newton's explanation was angels were moving the planets around. So Newton had basically crammed God into the gaps of knowledge. So then what happens when we find out how planets actually move? You know, we kick God to the curb. A person of faith doesn't want to do that. So I think we do run into a problem when we try to say that anything is unexplainable is going to never be explainable. Therefore, we chalk it up to God. And I'm with Jennifer. It actually um, expanded my view of God. It made me have a much larger view of God, um, under, understanding more about evolution and evolutionary processes. I think the other the other point that right becomes that, like you're saying, that danger is there are a lot of mysteries about the universe's origins. Um, there are lots of thoughts or theories, right? Big Bang and other things about how we can see movement and, and understand the universe around us. But if all of a sudden, right, there's a new discovery that shows. So r- right now I might say, oh, well, that's clear, you know, science science doesn't know everything. You know, clearly there's room for God because science doesn't know everything. Well, what if science figures out what happened <laughs> and explains mm-hmm. it, right? And then it's like all of a sudden my faith was built on right some shaky some shaky right. foundation there. Your faith was built on science. Yeah. <laughs> because you're 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 saying, okay, God is here in this gap. That's that's called the God of the gaps argument. Mm-hmm. God is here in this gap because we don't know what did it? So it must have been God. But what happens whenever science closes that gap? What happens to your faith? What happens to God? So you have to have a faith that is not built on the absence of science. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the the origin of life is the biggie. You know, you'll hear people say, only God can create life. And, you know, um, people will talk um, derogatorily about, oh, molecules to, to man, as if um, it would be impossible to show how life could arise from non-living. And so that's often used to, to proof text that um, science is wrong and, and uh, traditional beliefs of, of creation are correct. But what happens when we do demonstrate it? What happens when we do demonstrate um, a molecular non-living um, beginning to living so, uh, processes, living cells, self-replicating molecules, I think at that point we say, oh, we've just discovered how God did it. We discovered how God created life, and this is how from non-life. You know, to me, that's, that's where my, my view of God has gotten bigger. It doesn't, it doesn't crush me to, to find out um, new answers to something. And the value, and sometimes people think that the value of being human is taken away whenever you think molecules to man. Right. Um, but at the same time, that's when you have to go back 
to Genesis and you have to say, who am I in relation to God? Mm -hmm. And who is God? And the thing that's special about me is not my molecules, my DNA. The thing that's special about me is that I reflect the image of God. And that's not ingrained in DNA. Absolutely. And this sounds a little shocking, but I always like the question, does it really matter if we evolve to have eight fingers instead of five if we are reflecting God into the world, Does our, our physical body? And for that matter, does it really matter that we evolve to walk on two legs and not four if we are fulfilling mm-hmm. our, our, our task of reflecting God into the world? And we've put a lot of stock into our physical appearance and um, not into what our task that we have been given by God to reflect God into the world. So I have a question for you. I have two questions. First question, um, have you found that being a Christian scientist who accepts the science of evolution to be a lonely place? Because we have this idea that you have to choose. You, you can either be a Christian or you can uh, accept evolution, but you have to choose. So it's a lonely place to not to be there in the middle. Actually, I don't think so. I think that even among scientists who are not people of faith, I think there is a general understanding, and you touched on this before, I think there's a general understanding among scientists, even if they're not people of faith, that science and faith are addressing two different things, that uh, science answers questions about the how and the when, and faith answers questions of the who and the why. And I think that even though um, you know a, a, a scientist may not be a person of faith, they understand that they're addressing two different questions. Now, the problem that we run into is that there are, I'm thinking of two, very loud voices on opposite ends of the spectrum uh, that say, you cannot be a person of faith and be a scientist. You know, one is a is an atheistic person, another is a is a believer, but they're on opposite ends of the spectrum, and both say that you cannot be a person of faith and a scientist. However, most people fall in the middle of that spectrum. Um, that they uh, most scientists, I think, even will accept that a person can have faith and still be a scientist. Uh, Francis Collins is a, is a wonderful example of that. He's um, just stepped down as the head of the National Institutes of Health and led us through the Human Genome Project. And he is a man of deep faith and is highly respected um, throughout the world for his research and his leadership, yet is outspoken about his faith. And it's rare that you hear him criticized for being a person of faith. So I don't think it has to be a lonely place. I think that even um, non-believers understand that faith and science are addressing different questions. And you've studied evolution for a really long time. Um, Sometimes Christians who study evolution will turn their back on faith. Why do you still believe? Well, I guess I would say... um, my study of evolution and the age of the earth um, expanded my view of God. And philosophically, 
I would just have to go back to that question that says, why is there something rather than nothing? And I don't have an answer for that, and science doesn't have an answer for that. Um, and so with that in mind, I am compelled is probably the best word for it. I am compelled by the story of Jesus, and I can't turn away from it. And so that keeps me drawn to faith in Jesus. And why is there something rather than nothing is why I remain a person of faith. As we started our conversation, um, there are some things that science does not address, but they are the most important things in my life. The love of my family is one of the most important things in my life, but it's not science. And so there is parts of our existence, of our human existence, that can't be answered by science. And for me, it's the compelling nature and message of Jesus Christ that I, I stay. I stay because uh, what I learn and what I have from that cannot be answered by science. Well, Jennifer, thank you for being here. Yes, thank you for having me. And Janet, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. It's been fun. Dr. Janet Kellogg-Ray is an author and educator in the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of North Texas. Dr. Jennifer Huddleston is a microbiologist and chair of the biology department at Abilene Christian University. Our conversation on evolution is the first episode in a series on the topic. Next time, author and Old Testament scholar Mark Hamilton on translating ancient Hebrew to interpret the creation story in Genesis. Deep and Wide is produced in association with the Conversations class at University Church of Christ in Abilene, Texas, and distributed by public radio station KACU. I'm Nathan Gibbs, and this is Deep and Wide. Deep and Wide.